minutes to catch up with us on. Okay. Well, uh, looking forward to going to the park with you. was a little bit worried about the weather, but I think the weather's going to be perfect. I think it's going to be just right, and that's going to be fun. I hope that you will join us, even if it's your first time, one of your first times at Trinity. What a better time to kind of jumpstart some relationships and fast-track yourself into uh, getting to know some folks. Love to have you come. Looking forward to that. And I think for about 30 seconds, I should give you just a quick update. I told you last week that I was headed to Chicago, and I wanted to give you a little bit of an update. Actually, Wheaton is where I went. I found out that it's all just kind of one big blob thing, you know, every, it's all just together. And I uh, had, had an interesting time. So I went, there were about 50 people at, talking about rural church planting, church planting in rural areas. And I met some really interesting people. There were uh, multiple denominations there denominational leaders and that sort of thing. And really, I don't know how I slipped in the door. I don't know how I ended up being there because I was just a fly on the wall in the presence of some guys who were really doing some interesting things. And it was my privilege to be able to sit in on that and hear them talk about how to serve and how to advance the gospel in rural areas. Now, there are there are more people living in rural America than in the state of New York and California added together. More people living in rural America. And when we talk about rural America, we're not talking about Walla Walla. Walla Walla is not rural America. It's, rural America is the next step after Walla Walla. After you, you know, kinda, after you leave what we have, then all of a sudden you qualify for rural America. 60 million people and all these towns scattered across the country and how many of those cities have, how many of those little towns have a healthy church in them? And what can be done about that? And that's what this brainstorming session was about, and it was really uh, challenging to be part of seeing, uh, seeing the need and talking about the opportunities. And out of this meeting of 50 or so uh, people, an, an alliance has been created or is in the process of being created, an alliance of uh, multiple uh, churches and organizations and denominations joining together to reach rural America, and uh, they're going to begin talking about it. People are going to begin uh, thinking about how to meet the needs in some of these small towns. I don't know what that means for Trinity, but it's an opportunity for us to keep our ear to the ground and see what God has for us, because we live on, we're not, we're not, we are not nowhere, we're not, we're not the middle of nowhere, but we are right next to it. You know, and so what are we supposed to do with that? That's kind of what that conversation was about. So, look forward to what God will uh, show us as we just press into uh, the future. But we know what's right ahead of us this morning. We're going to be talking about turbulence this fall. We've been talking about times of turbulence, times when our lives just seem to uh, fall fall apart, and our picture of the future and the the life story that we had created for ourselves all of a sudden looks like. Uh, someone else grabbed the pen and started writing on our behalf because it's not starting to look anything like the story that we'd created. And that happens, and, and it's a scary time to be in when, when uh, all these things happen and our life seems to just spiral out of control. And these are not easy times to be in. And they happen to all of us. You're either in a time of turbulence or just in between. And so what do you do? I mean, the times of turbulence come with a huge amount of questions and a lot of doubt and a lot of fear and and really just, uh, you know, you don't even want to get out of bed and find out what the next day holds. You don't want to find out what the rest of your story is going to be like because the way it's going, you can't handle, you can't handle what the future is is beginning to shape up like. And it's hard just to get out of bed in times like this. It's hard to keep going. You want to give up. You want to give up hope. You want to quit. You want to quit trying. 
You want to quit believing, you want to quit caring, and you want to quit getting out of bed. You just want to quit. It's hard to hold on. So what we're going to do today is we're going to explore something that you can hold on to in these times of turbulence. It's a great promise. It's one of the clearest, strongest promises that God gives us for times of turbulence. And uh, it will be an encouragement to you. When they say, when they say to you, you know, they say, when you reach the end of your rope, tie a knot and hang on. This is that knot. This is that knot that will enable you to hang on even in the most challenging of times. Now, when I see this truth at work, it makes me think of the word jujitsu. Jujitsu is this ancient Japanese martial art, and it's a way of using your opponent's force that's intended to be against you, using that force for your own advantage. So you can imagine a movie scene where someone comes after a guy who's standing here. He's being, you know, some guy just comes to tackle him and he steps out of the way and grabs the guy by the collar and just uh, throws him through the plate glass, plate glass window. All right. Stepping and using his energy. And that's jujitsu. All right. Using your opponent's force and intentions to your own advantage and making it look like you meant to do that all along. That's jujitsu, and that's what we're talking about this morning. Uh, my description makes it sound easy, but it's actually something that's very hard to do. It's hard to do, but God does it all the time. God jujitsus. God takes evil and he jujitsus it and uses it for good. And he does that all the time. He does it with all things, he does it on a macro level in the world, and he does it on a micro level in your life. It's an amazing truth. And we know this because of a a section of Scripture, a teaching in our Bible, one that every Jesus follower needs to know about. Every one of us needs to know about this so that we can hang on to it. And you may already know where we're headed with this idea. It's Romans chapter 8. So if you'll open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, you may already know the Scripture that we're going to look at. You may be already familiar with it. You may be familiar with it, but you've never really looked at it closely. And you may even like be, I didn't even know that was there, and I'm so glad to hear about it. So I don't know where you fall in that category, but every one of us, I think, will benefit from some extended time in this passage of Scripture. And instead of a big chapter or a big section of a chapter, we're really, this morning, we're really just looking at one verse primarily. You'll want to leave your Bible open because we're going we're gonna to step back and look at a little bit of the broader context once or twice, but mostly we're honing in on one verse. It's Romans 8.28. And Romans 8.28 says this, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God, according to this teaching here, one verse that really does stand well on its own, says that God jujitsus. That's the clear teaching of Romans 8.28. If you wanted to put it in different words, you might say something like this. God orchestrates everything, even turbulent times, to accomplish good in His plan and in the lives of His people. Now, Look at that. If that is true, if that is true, that is an amazing promise. It's an amazing thing that God can take anything that happens to you, any dumb thing that you do, any 
evil thing that someone does to you, any random thing that happens around you, that God can take it and use it for good. That's almost too good to be true. But if it is true, then it's something to hold on to. Now we're going to look at this promise, this teaching in, in some detail, and kind of break it into its four different parts. seems like it falls. There are four different things you have to talk about if you're going to talk about this idea. And we're going to look at each of these four things and then take a little bit of time to unfold what it looks like in, in someone's life, a little bit of an extended example. So uh, the first thing we want to talk about is that God, the, the very first idea is that God orchestrates. God works. He works all these things together. Now, your NIV, your NIV probably just has the word works, all right, that God works for the good of those who love him. But the Greek word behind that word works is actually a lot more interesting than just works. It's a Greek word, it's a verb, compound verb, synergeo, and we get our word synergy from it. So, sin, together with, ergy, energy, Oh, right, God works together. That's really the idea here. Not just works, but takes a bunch of different things, disparate uh, things, un- unconnected pieces, and he works them together. That's why I like to use the word God orchestrates, because the picture of an orchestra, all these different instruments, all playing different notes at different times, but somehow it all fits together into something beautiful, that's a, that's a good picture of what's taught here in the idea of God working. He works these things together. He takes them all, he works them together. That's the first thing to understand about this promise is that God takes all these things, he works them together for good. Uh, second, what God works out is all things. He works out all things. Now notice what this does not teach. This does not teach us that God causes all things. If God caused all things, that would mean that God also causes evil things to happen in your life. And that's not the teaching of the Bible, that God causes evil in our lives. God doesn't cause it. Evil is present in the world because of Satan. Evil is present in the world because of sin. And evil is present in the world because of sinners. That's the cause of evil in the world. God is not the cause of evil in the world. God doesn't cause, but he does allow it. He allows it. He is in the process of eradicating it. That's what the gospel is all about. But until he eradicates it, God continues to allow it. And when he allows it, he jujitsus it to use it for good in the lives of his people and in his plan. And that includes evil things. We know it includes evil things because it says all things. God works together all things, including the evil things that happen, the hard things that happen in our lives. It says all things. Now that brings up another really important point. The promise here is not that, the promise here is not that if you follow Jesus, these things don't happen to you, right? That is not the promise. I had someone come to me between services and say, thank you for teaching that. That is so important for me to understand and people to understand. They said, thank you for reminding us. 
that, that this does not keep all things from happening to you. Just because you follow Jesus, it doesn't mean all things won't happen to you. It doesn't mean you are exempt from bad things happening. That's not what's taught in this verse. If you just read a little bit further down, take a look at verse 35. Verse 35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? He goes on to say, no, those things won't separate us from the love of God. What he's saying is, he's saying those things don't remove us from God's care, but he doesn't say those things don't happen to us. Actually, he, he teaches that these things do happen to us. Trouble and hardship and persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. These things still happen to Jesus' followers. We are not exempt from these things happening in our lives. That is not the promise of Romans 8.28. The promise of Romans 8.28 is that God can take all things. Not that God protects us from all things or keeps all things from happening to us, but that God takes all things and works them all together for the good of his plan and for the, and for the good of his people. So, That brings us to the third thing that we want to talk about. The first is that God works things together. The second is that God works all things together. The third is that God works all things together for good. And if you want to properly understand this promise, you have to understand what is meant by good. You have to understand what good means when Paul uses it here. Now, for some people, when they they learn what good means, they're like, oh yeah, I knew there was a loophole somewhere. I was waiting for the fine print, and here it is. Truth is, it's not fine print. It's where this promise actually delivers its, its most powerful punch. Because good in this passage is that which eternally benefits those who love God. That which eternally benefits those who love God. And it's God's view of good, not necessarily yours. I mean, your view, my, my view of good in a turbulent time is, is get me out of here. That is what would be good. Make it stop. That would be good. Make it go away. That's what would be good. That's not necessarily God's definition of good. And you know that just by reading the very next verse. So let's back up. Let's start with 828 and let's read the next verse with it. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. This process of foreknowing and predestined, what's the goal of that? The goal of that is conformity to the likeness of Jesus, being made more and more like Jesus. Uh, removing sin and adding holiness to our lives, becoming more and more like the Jesus that we follow. That is God's definition. That's God's ultimate goal for us, and it's his definition of good. It's what good in this passage means. That which is for our eternal benefit that makes us more like Jesus. Now, let's be honest. That's not always what you're looking for when you're in a turbulent time. You're not necessarily like, let this make me more like Jesus. You're, you're waving the white flag and saying, please get me out of this. 
we define good as that which meets our goals and our timeline and makes us comfortable when we want it. But God has a vision for your life that's a whole lot bigger than your vision for your life. And God has dreams for you that are a lot bigger than your dreams for yourself. God's dreams for you are not necessarily short-term, immediate relief. God's dream for you, God's vision for your life is long-term, and it's of eternal value, and it's becoming, making you more and more like Jesus. And this good, in Romans 8.28, it's not short-term good. It's not necessarily immediate relief. It's long-term good, and it might even take a long-term perspective to be able to see how it all worked for good. Now, you might find this disappointing. You might say, well, I knew there was fine print, you know. So that's where the loophole is here, you know. But really, jujitsu that idea, okay? And, and think instead, oh, this is not where this promise disappoints. This is where this promise really delivers. Because who knows better what is good for you than the one who made you? Who knows better what is actually good for you? And, and who knows what is best for your life? And, and would you rather know that God is working something that's going to be a short-term solution? Or would you rather know that God is working from a long perspective so that the good that you experience will last for eternity? I mean, this is not where this, this is not the fine print. This is actually the headline of this verse. This is the part of the promise that should be in big, bold letters at the top. God works all things for our long-term eternal good, not just for our short-term, short-term relief. This is where the promise delivers. And that's the promise in this verse that God is so committed to us and He's so powerfully at work in the world that He can orchestrate everything that happens, even turbulence, to accomplish long-term, eternal good in your life, even the hardest good possible, I mean, the toughest good to accomplish, which is making you and me more and more like Jesus. That's what this verse teaches us. So those are three ideas. God, God works, he orchestrates, he works all things. He works them for good, for eternal benefit. And then the last thing you have to talk about is, all right, who gets in on this? This is good. Who gets it? Well, the phrase says this. It's kind of two, two parts. Those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Now, I used to, I used to see this phrase, those who love. We're going to talk about these both together and apart for just a second. I used to see this first phrase, those who love him. If we're talking about who gets in on this promise... I used to see, and I've even taught, that uh, who, the people who get in on this promise are the people who really love Jesus. The subcategory of Jesus' followers who really love him. All right? And uh, I don't think that's right anymore. I don't think that's right. I don't think that, that it, it is a subcategory of believers. It's just for the believers who really love Jesus and are following him hard. And one reason I think that is because the second phrase is not a subcategory of believers. It's all believers, those who are called according to his purpose. That's every person who has ever turned to Jesus, 
who has ever uh, been born again, who's ever reached a point in their life when they realize, you know what, I, have, I, I am in danger of judgment from God because of my sin, and I look to Jesus as the one God sent. I want to make him the, the forgiver of my sin and the leader of my life. And if you read on in Romans 8, once that process starts, just read Romans, read verse 29, verse 30, once that process starts, God's going to finish it in the life of everyone who makes that decision. So that's every believer, not any subcategory. It's all believers. And that's, why, that's one big reason why I think the second, really the first phrase, those who love him also, is every believer. But you say, well, I don't know that every Jesus follower really loves Jesus like they ought to. Well, raise your hand if you love Jesus like you ought to. Yeah, <laughs> I don't love Jesus like I ought to, right? But... If you, but for every Jesus follower, God puts, I mean, there, there, God puts us in this category of people who are called according to his purpose and who love him. Not perfectly. So, the, the promise, this promise is not just for the high performing Jesus followers. I think it's for every person who belongs to Jesus because they've turned to him. Every person who, by that decision, has been adopted into God's family, that's who this promise is for. It's a promise that every Jesus follower gets to claim. Here's what John Piper says about this. He says, the beneficiaries of this massive promise, do you like that phrase, this massive promise? The beneficiaries of this massive promise are those who once did not love God, but now do love God because God himself has called them effectually from darkness to light, from unbelief to faith, from death to life, and has planted within them a love to himself. It's just a fancy way of saying this massive promise applies to every person who has ever turned to Jesus for forgiveness of sins and been born again. So the promise that we see today, you put all these four things together, God orchestrates, he works, he works all things. He works them for eternal good, long term, in in the life of every person who belongs to him, who's ever come to him through faith in his son. So that's the promise. Let's kind of marinate in it for a minute, that God orchestrates everything, even turbulent times to accomplish good in his plan and in the lives of his people. That's a great, great promise. Now what I'd like to do is I'd like to illustrate how this promise works. I want to illustrate how it works. And to take this truth, here's the problem, to take this truth and tell you a story about terrible things that happened to somebody and how happy they are now would be a disservice to this truth. It would be to trivialize what's, what's really being taught here. To say, well, let me tell you a story about some awful things that happened and how a few weeks later it all turned out perfectly. That's a disservice to this truth. That would set you up for wrong expectations because that's not what this passage teaches. It's not always the case that just within a few weeks or months or years, you get to see how everything worked out perfectly. It's 
Most of the time, or much of the time, at least, that's not the case. Long-term good requires long-term faith to see it through. Plus, if you're like me, a story like that wouldn't help. Because if you're skeptical like I am, you can think of a hundred, a thousand different ways you personally could mess that up. So I want to share with you a story that's a little more complicated than that. And it's going to take some time to, to talk about. And if some of you know parts of the story. Some of you know all the story. Some of you don't know any of it, all right? But it comes right out of the New Testament. It comes right from the life of the person who wrote these words. His name is Paul. And Paul wrote these words to the, the believers in Rome. That's why they call, it's called the book of Romans, right? He wrote these words to believers in Rome, a group of Jesus followers in the city of Rome, and Paul had never been to the city of Rome. Rome was a civic center. It was a, a place of, of great influence. And in this very pagan, influential city was a small group of Jesus followers. Paul had never been there, wanted to visit Rome. You can imagine for an, for an A-type like Paul, going to Rome would be awesome. He'd never been to Rome. He'd just written a letter to the Roman believers. Now, uh, you know that If you know much about his story at all, you know that he hadn't always been a Jesus follower, that he used to oppose Jesus and persecute Jesus followers until he himself encountered the risen Jesus. After Jesus' resurrection, Paul had an encounter with the risen Jesus, and and when he did, he realized that Jesus is really who he says he is, that, that he really is from God, and he really did rise from the dead, and Paul decides he wants to get on the winning side. And so he he switches teams. And instead of persecuting Jesus' followers, he becomes the leader of this movement called The Way. And he becomes so influential. He travels the whole Mediterranean area, traveling up from from, uh, Jerusalem into Syria and Turkey and Greece, planting churches uh, along the way. And he starts this whole movement of Jesus' followers. He goes into a new town. He preaches the gospel. People believe he, he organizes them, appoints leaders, and goes on to the next place and does the same thing, planting churches. And periodically, he stops and goes back to Jerusalem. And he goes back to Jerusalem in order to connect with the church that sent him and encourage those believers, let them know what's going on. He goes back to Jerusalem uh, to worship at the temple because he's a... He's a Jewish Jesus follower. Following Jesus for a Jewish person is just the natural extension of their Judaism. So he wants to go back, continue to worship as a, in the temple. But not everyone appreciates that because not everyone in Jerusalem thinks that following Jesus is the natural extension of Judaism. And there are those who, who, who believe that following Jesus is a threat to Judaism, and it's a heresy that has to be put out. So there are people in Jerusalem who guard the orthodoxy of Judaism, and they want Paul's head on a platter. Not figuratively. They want his head on a platter. And so, Paul, at the end of three big church planning trips, three big church planning trips over a course of about ten years, he decides it's time to go back to Jerusalem and visit. And uh, remember, there are people there who want his head on a platter. He, but he wants to go back. He wants to go back because he wants to connect with the church. 
He wants to worship at the temple, and I think he also wants to redeem his reputation a little bit as a Jesus-following Jew and build bridges to people who believe that uh, following Jesus is detrimental to Judaism. I think he wants to build some bridges and show that you can be a Jesus follower, and it really is the natural extension of, his, of their Jewish identity. And he wants to go back. But at every turn, at every turn, people warn him not to go back. You can, you can read this. All, it's all in the second half of the book of Acts. You can read what happens. People at every turn say, Paul, don't go back. If you go back, you'll be arrested and thrown in jail. And people at every turn tell him, don't do that. At one point, when he uh, lets people know of his intention, he's going to go back to Jerusalem, a prophet named Agabus says, Paul, let me borrow your belt. And Paul takes off his belt and he gives it to Agabus. And Agabus ties his own hands and feet with the belt and says, this is what's going to happen to you if you go to Jerusalem. Don't go. Luke, Luke, Paul's traveling partner, the person who wrote the gospel of Luke and who writes the events that tell us, that enable me to tell you this story right now. Luke and his friends conduct an intervention. Read about it. Luke 21, 12. They conduct an intervention. They say, please don't. They plead with him. Those are the words that Luke uses. They plead with him, please don't go to Jerusalem. That is a terrible idea. If you go to Jerusalem... You will be arrested and thrown in jail. I don't know what it is that drove Paul to go to Jerusalem. Whether it, whether it was his commitment to some part of advancing the gospel, he saw how it should strategically fit in, or he felt an obligation to these believers. Don't know what it is that motivated him. But when everybody said, please don't go to Jerusalem, you'll be thrown in jail, you'll be arrested and thrown in jail, he said, I'm going anyway. And guess what happened when he got there? He was arrested and thrown in jail. He was thrown in jail. And over the next several years, he gets knocked back and forth like a ping-pong ball. All right? He gets transferred from the Jewish authorities to the Roman authorities there in Palestine. And then the Roman authorities bang him around a little bit, and, and uh, uh, they pass him back and forth to different governors. And, they, and all this time, Paul is in prison. He's in jail. And... Uh, Back and forth, back and forth. You've got this A-type leader. You've got this guy who wants to make a difference for the gospel, and he's cooling his heels in jail. And finally, he gets so frustrated with the process, he gets so frustrated with the process that he says, he thinks he's never going to get out of there, so he says, I appeal to Caesar. Well, the minute you say that, you could, if you were a Roman citizen, appeal to Caesar, which meant that you could, you had the right to go to Rome and personally plead your case with Caesar whenever he found an opening on his planner, all right? Whenever he, you know, he's a busy guy, but if he gets an opening, then you get to argue your case with him. And Paul invokes this legal process. He says, I'm tired of this. I appeal to Caesar. Right after that, right after that, you got these two Roman authorities who are talking to each other and said, you know what? I don't think this guy's done anything wrong. The guy says, I don't think he does either. I think we should let him go. Well, we could let him go, except now that he's appealed to Caesar, we can't let him go. Because you can just start that process and then cut it off. So he started this process of appealing to Caesar. They have to send him to Rome to appeal to Caesar. He gets on a ship. The ship wrecks in a storm. He's in the water. He floats to an island. He gets on the island and builds a fire and picks up some firewood to build a fire, and a snake bites him and hangs onto him. 
I mean, all things were happening to Paul. Finally, he makes it to Rome. Finally, he makes it to Rome, but he's still in prison. He's not planting churches. He's the greatest leader in the movement of the way next to Jesus. But he's not doing anything but sitting under house arrest. He's under house arrest, chained to a Roman prisoner, or a Roman guard. And this whole episode takes about five and a half years out of his life and ministry. Improperly thrown in jail. And Bible scholars have debated ever since whether Paul did a stupid thing. Was Paul right to go to Jerusalem, or was he wrong to go to Jerusalem? Did Paul cause his own turbulence? God uses this turbulence for good. During this time that Paul is in prison, he wrote today what we call the prison epistles. Uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. He writes those books. He writes what we know today as the pastoral epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, all of these things recording truths that believers would need recorded for for the millennia ahead. While he's chained to this Roman guard, he's sharing the gospel with this Roman guard who changes shifts probably three times a day, three different guys, so that Paul, ultimately, the gospel spreads. For the very reason that he's chained to a guard, the gospel spreads through the whole Roman army. Look at what Paul says as he looks at this time in his life in one of his prison epistles. Philippians 1, he says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that my situation has actually turned out to advance the gospel. Here I am in jail, five and a half years with a Roman guard. Actually has served to advance the gospel, the whole imperial guard. And everyone else knows that I'm in prison for the sake of Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters, having confidence in the Lord because of my imprisonment, now more than ever dare to speak the word fearlessly. Because of Paul's imprisonment, the whole Roman army knows who he is and what he stands for. And all the believers in this hostile hostile city of Rome are emboldened because of Paul's boldness. So that the book of Acts ends... And it doesn't end with an appeal to Caesar. We don't know when Paul actually got to stand before Caesar and what happened. But because the book of Acts ends. And let me share with you the very last two verses in the book of Acts. For two whole years, Paul stayed there. Talking about in Rome. He stayed in Rome and rented in his own rented house. He was under house arrest. He paid the rent for his own jail cell, his own house. For two years, he stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He couldn't leave, but they could come see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God. Without hindrance. And taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. And that ends the book of Acts. It ends the story. Paul, in Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire, the center of influence in that enormous part of the world, And all of this because Paul arguably made a reckless decision. He he arguably went one risk too far and decided to go to Jerusalem. Now here's why Paul's story speaks to me. This story speaks to me. It speaks to Brad. 
on a Romans 8.28 level. Maybe it speaks to you on a Romans... I want to tell you why it speaks to me on a Romans 8.28 level. Because you have so many different variables at play here. You have questionable decisions that Paul made. Should he have gone to Jerusalem? Was that a rash decision? Should he have been more patient and not appealed to Caesar and skipped a lot of turmoil in his life? Was Paul being reckless? Was he, being, was he doing the right thing? What if he made a mistake? You have Paul. Then you have the variable of all the people who oppose him, who set traps for him. And then you have just the ineptness of government and bureaucracy on the Roman side of things. I mean, you have all the things that can go wrong. Paul, everybody else, and life. That's why that speaks to me. Because we have the same things that can go wrong. The same three things go wrong in your life. You, everybody else, and stuff around you. Right? It encourages me to see all those variables in Paul's story. And yet in all of this, God jujitsus. He orchestrates everything, even these turbulent times, so they accomplish good. Hey, even the snake bite, I'm not going to tell you how, but even the snake hanging from his hand, God used for good on this island. Read about it in the book of Acts. All of this God orchestrates, so they accomplish good in God's plan and in the lives of his people. They accomplish Good in God's plan for advancing the gospel, and it even advances the gospel in Paul's own self, making him more like Jesus. That's what this principle is about. That God does the very same thing in your life. Even if your decisions aren't perfect, even if there are people in circumstances that are out of control, God works all things for good for those who belong to him, who love him and are called according to his purpose. So my, my goal this morning is just to encourage you with this truth. I want to give you a knot to hang on so that you can know, even though you may not know all the ways God's going to use it, but you can know that God is going to use it. And you can back up and think long-term, not just short-term relief, but long-term God accomplishing good in you. So as a result of this truth, I want to encourage you to trust God. Trust God to use turbulence for your good, to use turbulence for good, and to make you more like Jesus along the way. Now, I know that's sometimes asking, that itself is asking a lot, just to believe. But that's what it means to follow God. There are certain points in time where we just have to put our trust in Him. So I want to encourage you to do that if you're in a time of turbulence. Just trust God to use this turbulence for your good, uh, for good and, and to make you more like Jesus along the way. And then I want to pray for you that God will enable you to hang on to this truth let me pray. Father, thank you for Romans 8, for the beautiful truths that it contains, and especially this one we've talked about this morning, that you work all things for good in our lives. We are so thankful that we can have a repaired relationship with you through Jesus, that we can belong to you and be called according to your purpose. 
Thank you for that. Thank you for this example that Paul's life, that even though he went through a lot of hard stuff, it speaks to us and encourages us to know that you're at work in the lives of your people. And I pray for all of us this morning, those of us who are in turbulence, in between turbulence, I pray that you will help us to hold on to this truth and out of this truth to trust you more and to love you more because, that, because you would do this for us, because this is who you are and how you relate to us. It's a beautiful assurance, and we are so thankful for it. God, I pray that you'll strengthen everyone here this morning who is just hanging on. Lift them up. Reinforce their faith in you and continue to help them persevere as you use turbulence in their life to make them more like Jesus. Amen.